0: Hello and welcome to American Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Simonson. Today's guest is filmmaker Samuel Pike. Samuel currently produces two outdoor television shows, Frontier Unlimited and Day One Outdoors. In this podcast, we learn how Sam went from making movies with his brothers in their central Oregon backyard to traveling the world, telling stories with a lens. We discuss the film industry, storytelling, the ethics of hunting, and pursuing a career that honors your faith, hopes, and passions. We discuss work-life balance and why sometimes the best tool for the job isn't a popular choice. Thank you for joining us on this first episode of American Podcast. Make sure to subscribe and find us on social media. And now, I present my conversation with filmmaker Samuel Pike. Hey Shane. (laughs) How's it going? (laughs) It's going good. So what would you consider yourself, an adventure filmmaker or... What title um, would you give yourself? Yeah, I mean, Adventure Filmmaker, uh, that's
1: kind of a soft title that I use. Usually when people say, uh, what's your title? I would say like, um, I'm an outdoor director of photography because, or an outdoor TP, which makes it sound a little bit more professional. Whereas everyone with an iPhone could be an adventure filmmaker kind of thing. So I try to like, try to steer it to something that's a little more specific to the industry. Um, just to have that uh, recognition of, a technical term that is a little bit more like, oh, okay, he might know what he's talking about rather than, you know, an adventure filmmaker is everybody on YouTube.
0: Yeah. Kind of thing. But you so, you do a little bit more than director of photography.
1: I do, yeah. I mean, you know, uh growing up and and starting a small business um from just out of college, um it, it really helps to learn all the aspects of a production if you actually want to jump into a specific part of production at some point. Um, so, from editing to uh, filming with a shoulder on your, or with a camera on your shoulder, um, and concept development with ideas, um, all that stuff is good stuff to learn in the beginning, so that we have a better understanding of the whole project. And then, as you go on in your career, um, you know, I've always had uh, a few people in my life that have always said, "Find a niche." You know, if you really want to make a career in this. Uh, you can make a career in this, and it's a constantly evolving um, industry. But um, being a jack of all trades is not a bad thing. <laughs> um, but to, in order to create a, a good, solid career that you can actually live on, um, it's—I think—it's been the practice from people that are older than me that kind of taught me a little bit or, or gave me advice. It was always find a niche, and that part that might be phasing out. Um, you know. Uh, because it 's constantly changing and being a jack of all trades is very useful, especially for smaller companies, so we, you know they don 't have to hire a whole ad agency with a direct f- director of photography and three editors and a motion graphics guy and stuff like that um, though that stuff is still really relevant, and I think that 's you know that 's the point the companies want to be is be able to hire um specific people that are amazing at what they do rather than someone that 's kind of good at everything mm-hmm. so um, went on rambling there. No, that's good. That's good.
0: But I mean, so what you work on, uh, a number of shows right now as yeah. a producer, director, editor. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I work, um, primarily in, in the outdoorsman, uh, television world is the bulk of my work. Um, uh, day one outdoors, uh, it's on Comcast or NBC, uh, Comcast Sportsnet. Um, and frontier unlimited, which is on the pursuit channel that I've been um, producing for about eight years now. Um, it's been a long evolving process, but, um, so that's basically what I do. Those are like my actual consistent jobs, which is really nice as a freelancer to have like one or two like consistent jobs that you know, you're going to get paid for every month or every quarter. That's super awesome. And then everything on top of that is just kind of a bonus. So ultimately like the, the outdoor television world is not necessarily somewhere that I want to stay. Um, but it's what gives me consistent income for now. Um, Ultimately, doing jobs uh, basically like small independent films, similar to what like Yeti's doing or Sitka Films is doing, is making these concepts around a brand, but the video isn't about the brand. It's about this idea that the brand represents. Um, So ultimately, being uh, in-field director of photography is kind of my ultimate goal with kind of short independent productions with companies that want someone they want a team of people that are like, that's what they do. So that's kind of like my goal right now. Okay. So it's slow, slowly getting there. Um, last year, I got hired by Realtree to shoot with Dr. Duck. Um, Dr. Duck is a um, kind of a, a, a personality in the duck hunting industry or the hunting industry in general that's a really, really well respected um, personality. Um, and working with people like that, you get to kind of show off what you do, um, and that's that's really fun. So, like ultimately, doing more jobs like that where you get paid a daily rate, and then you just ship the footage off for someone to edit it. Um, that's that's kind of the ultimate goal for now.
0: Yeah, yeah. tell me about that shoot with, with
1: Doctor Duck. Um, well, it was it was a long connected shoot from um, a real tree connection that I got working with some um, natives on the Yakima Reservation a couple of years ago doing an elk hunt. Um, it was a Northwest duck hunt and uh, my friend um, Andrew at Realtree, who's the marketing director at Realtree, um, called me because he knew I lived in the Northwest and he figured, well, instead of flying someone out from Atlanta, Georgia, where Realtree is, he figured he'd just hire me with my red to go shoot Dr. Duck for three days on their kind of, kind of a duck hunting vacation for them because they usually do public land hunts. Um, but every once in a while they brought their wives and, and girlfriends and um, they, they did this did this hunt, so I think Realtree is in the process of editing that together. And uh, because the Pacific Flyway is just you know a major flyway, that's you. I mean, you can look down a lake out in Southeast Washington, and you see thousands and thousands of ducks, which is yeah. It's pretty cool to see, but, um, it's just cool interacting with those personalities. You get a, you know, I've, I've been able to meet a lot of people in the industry and there certainly are different people (laughs) in the industry. Um, some of them are really, some of them are really great to work with and you just like hope you get another chance to, to work with them again. Um, and then some of the people are like, well, I probably don't need to work with you again, but that was fun. (laughs) Um, so, uh, I'd say I'd say it's kind of like a sixty forty split f- so far from one of them experience. Like I've, I would like to go back to work with sixty percent of those people and forty maybe not. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, but it's always it's always a learning experience to deal with different
0: personalities and. Um, what does that split look like for you? Like like what are the the deciding factors of people that you would want to work with or people you would not want to work
1: well, with? Well, um, I kind of run uh, the idea behind my business is. Uh, Following in a passion of mine, which kind of started with photography, but even earlier than that, it started with film. Um, My my dad, uh, I grew up with three brothers, and my dad was a big sci-fi buff, and so he raised us on films. Um, So we were watching War of the Worlds and Forbidden Planet and uh, Saving Private Ryan and all these movies, you know, Terminator, Aliens were big ones when we shouldn't have been watching, you know, when we were six years old, you know, and and, uh, we were the house, too, that that all of our friends would come over to watch it because they knew they couldn't watch those movies at their own house. So that was when kind of the three out of four of us, um, brothers now work in the video film industry. And I think that's kind of the root of, um, where, where our passion for video and storytelling and a visual aspect, um, became kind of a passion of ours and we decided to pursue it professionally. So in actually starting a small business, it's kind of, uh, my main reason for doing that is to do something that I love for work, because in my view that, uh, is we work too much in our lives not to at least like what we're doing. Um, and, I'd, and I could, you know, if I had to, I could get a job that, like, I don't love but I, you know, can deal with. And, you know, there's certain points in life where that might happen. Um, but my, my business is basically based off of trying to create, trying to frame the world in, um, in an image and the light that God has already created um, and be able to, to put that on a screen for people to see it. Um, and my kind of reason behind it is that I get to capture what's God, what God's created there, um, and show it to people, whether or not they acknowledge that or realize it. For me, that's kind of, uh, a passion of mine is, is, uh, capturing the beauty of the world that God's made, um, and just framing it in a way that people might really like it, but not necessarily know why I do it, if that makes sense. Um, so it's like a it, collateral of yeah the project yeah it's a, it's a it's a positive collateral yeah. of the project um <clears throat> because ultimately my you know i what i want to do is um make people feel you know i think uh, the the um ability to shed a tear at a good movie scene is a culmination of all these different traits that were put together by ideas from um, a music composer to a cinematographer to an editor—all these, all these professionals come together and they make this one scene that compromises our emotions because it relates to something that we've experienced personally, um, whether it's um, a breakup or a death of a loved one or overfilled joy from seeing someone you haven't felt, seen for a long time or a newborn coming to this world. You know, um, so. You know, I really, I really value the ability for um, people that really know what they're doing to be able to express something that is, um, in effect, breaking people's walls down. Um, because I think it's all, you know, um, <clears throat> depending on where you grew up or what your upbringing was. I think in American culture, it's all too uh, common to, you know, if you're a man, you don't cry. You know, you don't, you don't watch a, you know, really heart wrenching movie scene and you don't shed a tear. You know, but to me, that's bogus, um, because the feel is to me, um, a reflection of your connection with others, uh, your connection with God. And, um, that's really important, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that kind of, that kind of leads into the idea, this idea of reality. Sure. Of realness. Like as a man. Yeah. Like you have feelings. (sighs) Right. You know, you have a full range of feelings. Right. Um, and that kind of reminds me of, we were talking earlier about the Instagram account, like right. nature is metal. Right, yeah. And there's the reality of what nature is when society wants to tell us, like, animals are fluffy and...
1: Yeah, fluffy and cute and all friendly and stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I, I love Disney movies and I grew up with, you know, I grew up with Beauty and the Beast and all that all that stuff. And it's, I'm, like, in no way is that bad. Well, yeah. Basically, Nature is Metal is an Instagram account that shows. Well, animals first of all, I just want to think is,
0: it's funny that you're like, your example is, is Beauty and the Beast, yeah, where right? nature is.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah Beauty and the Beast is kind of like Nature is Metal. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so yeah, the, the reality of, um, of our world is a lot more raw than a lot of people like to perceive it as or express it as. And so, um, in the hunting industry, Um, There's a lot of different personalities and a lot of unethical people and a lot of ethical people. And so the the hard part is, um, you know, expressing a story specifically in outdoor TV or outdoor media content, um, expressing a story that helps people understand that um, outdoorsmen or hunters aren't just horrible people that like to kill things. And they, you know, they just get some kind of weird primal like, you know, I I don't even know what. Do you but, think those
0: people are out there?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure, and that's the hard part. That's the hard part is is trying to decipher like, you know, nobody's um, there's uh, that's kind of the, the 60/40 split that I was describing earlier. Like that's what it means. That's what I kind of that's how I kind of describe it. It's like 60% of the people that I want to go back to work with aren't like aren't unethical people that just take 12 shots at an animal and try to, you know, uh, do specific things that are just kind of off-putting. Um, I try to go back to work with people that I, that I respect because ultimately, um, we have a finite amount of time on this planet as a human being. And ultimately I would like to spend it with people that, um, build positive energy, uh, ultimately push people towards the Lord. But even if that's not direct building positive energy and building people up, um, to inspire them, um, is, are the kind of people that I want to spend time with, whether it's work or personally. Um, and so, you know, uh, nature is metal. It, you, you know, you get a lot of comments in the outdoorsman industry, especially when you post a video from hunters and anti hunters. And there is a lot of hate that goes around because a lot of people think that hunters are just horrible, unethical people. And there are some, like I said, it's hard to, it's hard to sift through that sometimes, but ultimately, you know, a lot of comments like you're horrible for killing that, you know, innocent animal, you know, and, and you've ended its life and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I just kind of, it, it helps me to think of nature in general and how Disney or, you know, parenting or however people perceive what animals are, like you say, cute and fluffy, there's nothing cute and fluffy about a black bear eating a baby deer alive, that takes ten minutes, starting from the anus, because that's where the softest meat is. Like, there's nothing fluffy about that. When a bullet goes through the heart of a deer and kills it in four seconds, that's a lot more ethical than eating a baby deer alive. So it's and and we are part of nature. I hear people that that uh, whether they choose to be vegetarian or vegan, um, I hear them saying you know often that like we don't need to kill things to have nutrition for our body. You know, which sure like. Yeah, you don't. You don't need to eat meat to stay alive. You know, that's for sure. I get that. And I, and I totally, I, I don't have anything against people that don't eat meat because, um, they you know, they um, are speaking out against, against animal cruelty or, or mass farming or, you know, stuff like that. I get it. There's a lot of horrible farming practices out there and unethical stuff. So I, I get that stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to like pick a side here. But like when people do um, really lash out at hunters or outdoorsmen, um, meat harvesters um, they have to understand that not not all of us are the same yeah, yeah. you know um, and that's a an really easy spot to get to in our in our climate specifically now with how polarized it is um, it's like you are either that or you are either that and that's like totally not true
0: can you, you know? explain to me the uh for the audience too the the idea of, of hunting as harvesting, because yeah, for sure, I think that's within the, the hunting industry that's a common idea and in, in term. Yeah, right. But I think someone that's not familiar with hunting, yeah, they wouldn't understand the idea of hunting as harvesting. Yeah, for
1: sure. Um, so harvesting, you know, like you think of harvesting wheat in a field, it's it's the same thing when you when you har- when you shoot an animal. Let's say when you just kill an animal, whether it's an elk or a deer or a moose or a bear or whatever it is, harvesting is a process of of, of um, cutting up the meat and bringing it back home, putting it in the freezer to feed your family or you or you know whoever it is. So whether you're in the wilderness and you're boning it out, you're cutting off every single little piece of meat on that carcass and you're putting it in a meat bag and you're bringing it back and then you're washing it at home and then you cut it up and you put it in freezer paper and put it in the freezer and feed your family for the rest of the year. Um, and then that carcass up there is going to be chewed on by coyotes and mountain lions and bears. It's all a cyclical process that – you know that'll that'll uh, that's been happening for well ever since the earth has been here. So that's what I mean by harvesting is bring being able to bring home that bounty of that meat that you know has not been processed, hasn't been puffed full of hormone hormones to um, to make it fatter or whatever it is. So when you talk about eating organic, like that's just as organic as. Um, you know, planting planting a garden and, and planting your own lettuce and carrots. In fact, it might even be more, more more organic because that's totally untouched meat. Whereas seeds, I mean, there's Monsanto, there's all kinds of stuff that that make, you know, specifically organic, but might not be organic. Yeah. You know, so that's that's kind of what the the process of the harvesting aspect of it is is so wonderful to be able to actually eat off of the um, off of the cleanest, most organic food out there. Um, also, and it comes with just a great story, whether it's you alone in the wilderness or on a ranch somewhere, or whether it's, you know, my favorite is spending time with friends in the, in hunting, whether you're up in a wall tent for a week and you come, come back every night and tell stories about how close you got or you're all around, you know, the harvest of a deer and you're cutting it up together to take home to your families. Like that's the harvest that I... That, I, um, that I'm talking about. And it's just wonderful to be able to offer that to your mom or your son or your brother or your sister or whoever else uh, because you know where it came from, and there's a good story behind it. Yeah. And it's also hard. I mean, some hunts aren't hard, and that's fine, but the hunts that I do with my friends, we go up into the wilderness for five miles, and if you get a deer, you're hiking 100 pounds out for five miles. And that's, that's hard. And so it also comes with that kind of like sweat equity um, where you're like, no, it's primal. Like it's kind of like nature is metal. Like sure, we're using a bullet, which is not natural, um, but that's how we hunt. You know, we we don't have claws and big teeth. You uh, know, uh, if we uh, could run like a mountain lion, we'd probably hunt that way, but we don't. <laughs> you know,
0: well, that's an interesting thought. Though. I mean, you wear shoes. You wear yeah, right. A, a coat. Like, yeah, right. Is that natural? Like, no, it's totally not. But maybe it is to humanity.
1: Well, especially now. I mean, back in the day, you know, they didn't have clothes. They didn't have Gore-Tex. They didn't have crispy hunting boots, you know. They didn't have all this stuff. And they did it. They made spears. They made bow and arrows. And they have Americans. I mean, they they, they did it. Yeah. And so I think, um, I mean, ultimately, you know, and and when I go back to like hunting, you know, I, I kind of go back to scripture, how man is kind of like over everything on the earth. You As a steward. As a steward, not as a... Um, and steward is, is, can sometimes be like, you know, people will think about steward and, and put it up against what, uh, you know, unethical hunters do. And obviously it doesn't match up. Right. So to be a steward is actually like to take care of and to make sure that it's there for future generations. And to, to be a steward is to be a server. Whereas, you know, whether it's on TV shows or YouTube channels or whatever, people doing, you know, really stupid, unethical things, um, it's hard to look at that and be like, they're a steward because they're not. They're they're doing things that are counterintuitive or counter what scripture says for being a steward of the earth.
0: Yeah. So so, so speaking of that, coming back to like the content that's like on YouTube or... Sure. Um, and rather than focusing on the unethical content, like mm-hmm. um, you work on two shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Day One Outdoors and Frontier Unlimited. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I really appreciate about those shows is um, you're sharing tradition, you're sharing lifestyle. Like, to me, a healthy lifestyle, a healthy approach. Um, So talk to me about those shows. Sure. um, And then what you see the beneficial purpose of those shows are, you know, just for for anyone that were to watch them.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, uh, Frontier Unlimited uh, started – with my brother, actually, who had produced the first season, and then he left for Colorado, and I was uh, finishing up college, and actually took the production over. Um, and it's been the it's the eighth year of doing Frontier Unlimited, and it gets it gets better every year. But it's basically based off of the idea of telling a story um, from the aspect of an outdoorsman. So it's not a hunting show that's just like uh, we'll see how big of a buck we can get and just talk about that. Um, sure, we talk about a little bit of that, but that's not that might be. F- 10 to 15 percent of the episode of talking about how big of a bucket it is other than that it's what the bucket is eating where it's at the the history of the place we're hunting so we're trying to create kind of more of a holistic story all that we're doing is capturing a story and building it around the hunt or the fish um and that that to me is more um you know we try to approach it with more of a cinematic feel rather than like a reality feel um and so that's kind of something that I want to try to steer away from is, is um, not being just like everything that's out there. And people will um, react to that differently. We, you know, I get a lot of comments from gary specifically because he's the one actually interacting with viewers at shows and stuff like that he sends me comments where they're just like this show is better than anything we've ever seen it's actually like a meaningful story around hunting with your daughter or whatever um and then i also get comments like you know i had to turn the show off it was so horrible no need for the fluffy content it's not meant for a hunting show you know and so it's like you get you get those two juxtaposition comments and you know you're going to get, you're going to get that stuff. And that, that one, you know, the, the fluffy content, the fluffy narration is what he said. Um, it's like, I, you know, initially I'm just like, well, then I don't care about you watching our show because you're not getting it, <laughs> you know, and that's fine. Um, but I text, I responded back. Thanks for your input. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I yeah. saw that comment, actually. Yeah. yeah,
1: because, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to jump into the, you know, necessarily argue online because that stuff usually never ends up, well, in my experience, has never been productive with comments that start out like that. You know, if it's starting out like, huh, why are you guys doing this? Then I'll have a conversation. But that wasn't a conversation comment. That was a... Uh, yeah. Just kind of a personal opinion comment with no constructive.
0: It's more like a, a jab.
1: Yeah, yeah, jab that's all. To the was. Side comment, right? And so, um, I just don't pay too much attention to that. It might raise my blood pressure for ten minutes, you know, <laughs> and I have to like calm down and then respond and say thank you. Uh, <laughs> but ultimately, you know, the the people that um, you know comment on it saying that I watched that steelhead episode and the narration everything about cinematography everything about it actually shed a tear because it reminded me of my last fishing trip with my dad before he died um like those are the comments that that i hope we hear more of uh because those are the stories that we want to tell like that's i care so much more about that comment and that person than someone that just wants to take jab yeah um i mean the person wants to take jab shoot i mean if i said well what show do you produce let me let me see it you know, and, and maybe he'd send me a great Sitka film that he did, and I'd be like, "Wow, cool, nice job," you know. But pro- he probably wouldn't have anything to show me.
0: Yeah, he
1: just has an opinion, you know, and that's fine. But I don't really care much about that. <laughs> um, and then the other show, uh, Day One Outdoors. Is, a, is primarily a fishing show. Um, we do a couple hunting episodes a year, but it's primarily a fishing show in the Northwest. But we also have gone over the world from uh, Chile, Patagonia to, to Samoa and Hawaii and doing marlin to steelhead to bass to pan fishery to crappie. So it's, it's basically an educational show with a mix of storytelling within it. Um, it's, it's very educational in the fact of going through the gear, helping people understand what they need. And taking out the mysticism of the challenge of, you know, catching a trout or even catching a steelhead. Um, and so Cody Cody Herman is the host of that show. And he's very, very intelligent. He has his master's in hydrology. He's a fishing guide. Um, he's been a fishing guide for six or seven years now. Um, and he's just, a, like I said, you know, I work with the people that I want to continue to work with. And Gary Lewis and Cody Herman are, are two really great friends that I'll keep working with until, you know, the show isn't there anymore or... But um, we'll continue to stay friends, and so that's why I love working with them because they're, they're good people um, that do a good job, that do a service to the industry, but also do a service to just humanity in general because it's a positive, educational, story-based um, production for people to uh, enjoy and learn from. So That's
0: great. That's great. Yeah. So how did you um, – let's take it back to how did you – where did you get the idea of doing video production? And well, uh, then how did you see that through to yeah to actually doing it?
1: Well, when we were about five or six years old, our dad bought us a um, a VHS video camera that you plug into the wall, and we started making talk shows uh, with you know made up characters and uh, we dress up and it was called the Casey Show. Casey's my brother who's now an animator down in L.A. Um, and and so I think that was kind of the beginning of it. Because ever since then, we you know we'd upgrade to like a Sony Handycam with a Mini DV, you know, and or Mini DV, and uh, and we'd make little Star Wars films and little like military films. They're super cheesy and corny, but they you know I look back and I'm like, well, that's probably where video production actually started because we had a hand, you know, we had a camera in our hands when we were young, um, and so we did that all through elementary school, middle school, high school. Just in the summertime, we would spend the whole summer producing an hour-long movie you know and they're cheesy but you go back and look at them and you're like wow that's that's like a feature film that these middle schoolers did <laughs> you know and they had we you know my brother spent a lot of time making a whole script for it and we'd go through scenes and a storyboard um, my brother Casey he's he's I mean he was kind of the the lifeblood or the backbone of all these projects um and you know he works for Hollywood now so it makes sense um so that's where video production started. Um, and then high school happened, and I started um, studying photography in the dark room with film and uh, just fell in love with creating and uh, capturing an image and the frame and the lighting using natural light primarily, um, because that's kind of just what I had. And so I, I grew to um, find unique angles or interesting shallow depths of field that um, I liked. <laughs> And so I just kept doing that and then bought a film camera and played with that for years and then uh, went to college at OSU, Oregon State, and um, went through sports medicine degree, changed that to a geoscience degree. Um, And then while I was fighting wildland fire, I got a call from my brother, Eli, who was um, already doing video production. Um, and he called and said, Hey, Sam, do you want to be an intern of mine? You could get college credit for it and help me produce an outdoorsman hunting show. And well, I said, yeah. And he said, okay, well, you just got to move back from Corvallis and go to OSU Cascades instead of OSU. And you got to change your major to a communications major, a liberal studies, communications major. So you can use the interning experience of filming and editing for internship and independent study credits. And, uh, you got to tell me in three days. And this was like a week before the new term started in the fall. You know, so I was like, well, shoot, that sounds like fun. So I guess I'm just going to do that. (laughs) So I moved back home and uh, moved in with my parents uh, above their shop and um, spent the last, spent the next year uh, editing more than I wanted to. And we went out on shoots with a camera in my hand. I'd go out on shoots with Eli and we'd both be filming. And, uh, and I did that for a year and maxed out my independent study and internship credits with OSU. And, um, and then the year after that, uh, my brother uh, Eli and his wife Kelly decided they were going to move to Colorado. And Eli said, well, Sam, you can, um, you can just bail on this project and, and move on, graduate and do something else. Or you can take a loan out and buy some of your own video equipment and, um, and have the show. And you can take it over and work with Gary. And so at that point I was kind of like, well, I, I want to keep doing this. Um, it did not make good money. (laughs) You know, in the beginning, I think I was making $350 an episode to film and edit, (laughs) (laughs) you know, for the first year, maybe two. Um, and so I, I co-signed with my mom to get a $6,000 loan with us bank to buy a camera and some microphones and, you know, the bare bones stuff. Um, and once I had all that, we filmed and traveled for a year, for, for two years, uh, you know, off and on. And Gary, you know, <laughs> Gary has, has been in the industry for a long time. Gary Lewis, and he's a write, He's a great outdoor writer, and he has a lot of connections by um, just working in the outdoors outdoorsman industry. Um, so through his connections, he was able to get sponsorships from certain companies that he has relationships with to fund Frontier Unlimited. And so that's where I got paid and that's where Gary got paid. And so Gary and I, you know, Gary is actually technically my only business partner. Everyone else is just contractual uh, work, so freelance work. So Gary and I own Frontier Unlimited 50-50. So when sponsorship dollars come in, we just split it 50-50. So that's how it's worked from the beginning and that's still how it works. I'm, r- I'm rambling. Wait a minute.
0: Where were we at? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about how you got started yeah, and right. what that turned into. So. Yeah, and
1: so after uh, you know doing those two first years of Frontier Unlimited, at the time it was called Gary Lewis Adventure Journal. Um, and we kept getting hammered by the FCC to close caption our show, but it was going to cost more than was – Necessary or more than made sense for what we made on the show, so we just kept petitioning it and petitioning it, and finally we decided to change the name after the third year of Gary Lewis Adventure Channel um, to Frontier Unlimited. Why did you have to change the name? Uh, because we figured we'd just change the name, and then we'd have another year to escape the FCC's closed captioning BS. <laughs> It was kind of a creative way to just uh, you know make a make a title also with the abbreviations of FU, so that we figured that worked pretty well, (laughs) Um, and we really liked the name, so we both came up with that, Um, and then yeah, and eight years later here we are, Uh, so it's uh, we've been on the Pursuit Channel for a couple years now, um, and finding the avenues to make our show. Um, noticeable or available has been quite the process of learning and figuring out where we should allocate the funds from sponsorship dollars to put our show out there. And it's, uh, it's, it's still a show that, um, that doesn't make great money. Um, a, lot of, a lot of outdoor TV actually fails because it makes no money. In fact, a lot of people go bankrupt um, trying to make an outdoor TV show because they use their own funds to put their show on the outdoor channel for $50,000 a quarter And then it, you know, doesn't get really any foothold to make any money and then suddenly people are bankrupt. So the way we're doing it um, is smarter than uh, a lot of avenues for thinking, oh, I'm going to have an outdoor TV show. Because Gary and I, like, we don't really care about – Gary doesn't care about being a celebrity. He doesn't care about deep being on TV. He doesn't care about, like – he's not a person that wants that. Uh, He doesn't want to be famous necessarily. That's not why he does it. And I don't want to be on TV so that people, you know, well, I mean, of course, knowing your name and your production company is a good thing for business, but I don't want to be on TV so that I'm famous. It's just an avenue for us to share our stories. And TV is still a relevant thing right now. Um, Obviously, online platforms are becoming more relevant. And so trying to find that balance of phasing out or just moving into is a, is quite a process. So that's where we're at right now. Uh, day one outdoors, I've been filming with them for five years, uh, came on because through a, um, through a contact that I had through a friend of my sister's sister-in-laws, um, I got a one day shoot with day one outdoors and they really liked what I did. So they kept hiring me. And then, uh, five years later, I'm his main guy and I'm, um, Responsible for the entire season of Day One Outdoors for filming and editing, um, and uh, so those those are the two gigs that are kind of like my backbone um, that have been able to help me grow my business. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of people have helped me along the way, giving me opportunities to either you know house sit in in the Beaverton area for next to nothing. Um, so it's been able – a lot of people have been able to help me grow my business through indirect uh, generosity so that I could spend money that I would be spending on rent in a nice house in Beaverton on back into my business. And um, so I'm finally at a point where – sure, I, you could always need more equipment or different equipment or upgrade equipment. But I'm finally at a point where I don't need to be upgrading my cameras right now for at least you know, four or five years really. You, know, you can – Or I could look for a house to buy and actually be a grown up, you know, because your business is actually, um, you know, it's in a spot where it's, you know, kind of sustaining itself. Um, So it's yeah, it's been an eight year road with Hill Shadow Pictures. And, you know, I'm not a businessman necessarily, but I'm learning a lot about it and trying to become a better businessman, but also not um, compromise why I'm doing what I'm doing based on being a better businessman.
0: So, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so moving forward, Mm -hmm.
1: what's the, you know, moving forward, I, um, I, uh, bought a a red cinema camera uh, a couple years ago, uh, based on this idea that I got a lot of, uh, I got turned down by a few production companies that, you know, really loved my work and we'd be on the phone for two hours. And they're just like, your stuff is amazing. We want to hire you. What's your daily rate and what do you shoot with? And I'd tell them, and at, at the time I was shooting with a GH4 um, for the smaller production. Well, that was my main rig at that time, and and uh, after I told them what my daily rate was and what I was shooting with, you know, they suddenly were just like, "Oh, okay, well, you know, we might call you," you know, and of course, you never hear anything just after they said your stuff looks amazing. So I realized that um, a lot of doing production um, in today's world for smaller production stuff. Um, what they what they would do, you know, this is what I this is what I came up with is they would look up on Google what I shoot with, see that it's a GH4, they'd see the body on B and H or Adorama or something, and say that's that's a fifteen hundred dollar camera. This guy really doesn't know what he's doing. He's not a professional, and you know you wouldn't get a call back when really in reality, sure the body's fifteen hundred dollars, and then the Metabones adapter for your Canon L glass is six hundred dollars, and then the Canon L glass is twenty five hundred dollars. Ultimately, all built out, ready for field, ready. It's seven eight thousand dollar camera. Right with mics and everything. And so, but they don't know that. They just look at, you know, their kind of misunderstood knowledge of the industry um, and apply that to who you are professionally. So I realized that I needed to uh take a take a big step to kind of play the game. Um, and playing the game is the perception of how people see you, you know. Um the red digital camera is like this pop icon camera. That started Well, it didn't really start, but it got major with The Art of Flight, which is a snowboard film that was made back, man, it must have been uh, early 2000s, I think. Um, and so it was a beautifully shot film. And The Red's an awesome camera. But ultimately, I, I came to this idea that, well, maybe The Red is just a, a gateway. Maybe it's just an avenue where if I said this is my daily rate and I shoot with a camera that they shoot Hollywood films with that costs, you know, all built out and ready, $21,000, then suddenly people will go, oh, okay, that guy knows what he's doing, even though it's total BS. Anybody can go out and buy a red on a credit card. and But it's like you buy a red and it's just a box. You can't do anything with it. You have to build it out. And you have to understand how to use it and learn it um, to actually use it well. And so. I did that. I, I bought a Red Raven, which was is the lowest is the lowest model that Red has, but that doesn't matter because it's a Red. Um, and through that, in the two years of having the Red, I've spent about twenty two thousand dollars on building it out, and I've made around sixty five thousand dollars with it in the last two years. So it's it's paid off, and the game is working. Um, which you know I don't want to discredit the Red's capability or its, um, or its impact in the industry because it is an amazing camera. Ultimately, though um, I'm just playing the game. Um, the cinematography and the style of the cinematographer doesn't change per camera, usually. And so for my GH5 that I'm shooting on smaller production stuff like Frontier Unlimited or Day one Outdoors, it's gonna look pretty similar to what I'm shooting for Real Tree, you know, and Dr. Duck, um, but it's just gonna have a lot more flexibility because of Red Code Raw and post flexibility. But really, when you think about it, I'm not a colorist. I can take that footage and send it to a mad red colorist and he can make it just pop like crazy, but that's not me. So ultimately, when you ask, what, what is my future hold? It's not to be a colorist. It's not to be a. it's not to be a, a jack of all trades in the red world is to be a cinematographer that shoots with a camera he knows for the job. Ultimately a red is not a great hunting camera because it takes 30 seconds to turn on after you change your batteries. If you have know anything about elk hunting, you don't have 30 seconds to change that you don't have 30 seconds to change out a battery. It's also really loud when you turn it on it fans up like crazy. And I was going to hear that from 100 yards away. So like when you're talking about what is the best camera that you're using for your job, I mean, the GH5 is a better camera for that kind of work, but it's not as good of a camera. You don't have as much post flexibility for, you know, correcting in post if you were overexposed there or had a wrong white balance there. And so technically, you know, it's it's what I will, it's what I hope to be using more of and I am using more of it, Um, but I'm still learning with it and i went to Education in burbank which is a 3 day course with the hollywood you know industry people to teach you about red and to teach you about the cinematography, cinematography behind it the color science behind it and all this specific stuff because it goes deep you know and it would take you a long time to get really well versed in all of it and that's what i'm trying um, but that's where i'm kind of at and so the future of hill shadow pictures or samuel pike um That kind of uh, is yet to be determined. One of the things that has really helped me to lean on my faith in Jesus is that um, I can work towards something, but ultimately doors opening and doors closing has been a major factor in um, my walk with my faith and my walk with the Lord to kind of say, sure, I don't want to be an outdoor TV anymore, but it's still there and it's making me an income and I enjoy it. And I like the people I'm meeting and I'm creating an effect, whether it's hanging out with the host on these shoots or other people on the shoots. On Day One Outdoors, I meet a lot of people and a lot of people that, you know, might not know the Lord or a lot of people that have been turned away from that kind of idea. Um, And it's just another opportunity for me to just be an impact, not to like go preach to them, but to be an impact. And on, on multiple of these shoots... You spend enough time with them to where you can start getting in deep conversations, and you get a chance to say what you believe and why. And even even a "huh" from someone in that conversation—that's that's enough reason to be there.
0: So, how, how important is that to you? Because <clears throat> that, that applies to anyone, yeah, totally. you know, in any business, any industry, of, right? Of um, having their their belief system, and as as a Christian, mm-hmm. you know it's not a place where you want to tell people what to think or yeah, right. force them into, but you want to share the truth that, you know, yeah, to give them the opportunity to make a decision about it or learn right. more about it. Right. And so for you, like how much of a role in your, um, in your, how does that work for you to have that desire to do that? yet you know, working in a professional environment, mm-hmm. um, how does that work for you to do that in a healthy way? Yeah. That's right. not offensive. No, for sure. Um, yeah. What does that look like?
1: Um, <laughs> That looks like living differently. Um, I've been on some shoots where people do things that um, were were very wrong to me, and I didn't partake. And so just the fact of not partaking raises a question to those people of, huh, what's up with him? Um, and so sometimes it does turn into a question. And somebody asks, hey, why didn't you join us on that? And then I tell them. Um, I don't necessarily... Um, Tell them straight up if they don't ask. Sometimes I will, um, if it's something that's like, like messed up, um, and often you know that doesn't that doesn't um, often happen. But it is it is important to me. But I've been turned off um, from Christianity when I was when I was a kid because of the effect of people trying to cram it down my throat or hit me over the head with the Bible. You know, so I understand that that doesn't work. Not only does it not work it it's it turns people away from what Jesus actually does so um, ultimately I think planting a seed for people through how you live and how you treat people and the presence that you have uh, whether it's on a shoot or after a shoot uh, or just with your friends and family I think that's um, I think that's a, a testament to the character of an individual is how they um, live and how they, um, treat people as reflective of what they believe. And people get curious about that if it's different from what they're used to. Um, and so it's important to me. Um, but I also don't force it in a professional environment. Um, it's not like I'm going on these shoots and being like, Hey, do you know Jesus? You know, that doesn't like, (laughs) that's not a good way to actually connect with people in that way. Yeah. Um, as, as far as I've found. Um, and maybe that's just not who I am. Um, but I think, um, you know, everybody that, in fact, most of the shoots that I go on, you know, if they're two days or more, uh, most of the people I go on shoots with end up knowing that about me, but I believe in this guy named Jesus that, you know, was the son of God and he's our savior. And, you know, though it might seem crazy to them, um, it might not, you know, it might be like, yeah, I went to church when I was young and kind of let it go. And, you know, huh. You know, and, and maybe maybe that'll plant a seed or not, but ultimately that's not up to me. That's that's up to just, you know, hoping that the Lord works through me to really make someone curious. And that goes with work environment, goes with just living your daily life, goes with interacting with friends and family and strangers. Um so it's important, but it's not um I don't force it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man.
0: Cool. Yeah. All right. So, um is there anything else you want to talk about or you can think of?
1: I think the the difficulty with, you know, having your own business as, you know, is that um you know, it's pretty once you get rolling with your business and you become efficient at it and you like what you're doing, it's pretty easy to become a workaholic. Um or to to kind of know that like this is how I can make the mortgage or this is how I know I can make my car payment or you know, you, um it's pretty easy to let that become your life. And and I'm not necessarily saying that like Well, I think making your work become your life is not necessarily a healthy thing, Um, just generally. Um, But so it's a hard balancing practice between taking your passion and that being your work, one of your passions, of course, hopefully, um, that being your work, it's healthy to take a step back sometimes and realize like, no, this might not be the best step for my business or this might not be the shoot that I should be going on. Um, But ultimately it's, um, it's the, the decision to take a step back from your work and realize that like um, your life isn't based. your value, my value is not based on my work. Um, and it's easy to get there. you know, when you're trying to make ends meet and you're loving what you do and you're trying to tell this story better than that story or whatever, you can let all that kind of come in and crush you a little bit. Um, and I, and it's, I think it's a good idea to take a step back and try not to let that crush you because everybody's susceptible to it. Um, Whether it's competing, you know, putting yourself up against another production company that's doing similar work or, um,
0: you know, whatever it might be. I think it's just important to remind yourself that, you know. So it's kind of like like what's the aspiration of your personal life and then what's the aspiration of your professional life? Totally. And then how how do those interact? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean the aspirations of my personal life – is to, um, is to lead a, a Christ-centered life, which to me means uh, loving other people just outstandingly, taking care of them, um, and speaking truth whether it hurts or not. Um, and then the aspirations of my professional life go to um, affecting uh, whether it's the outdoorsman industry in a positive way um, or creating a better understanding so that there's not as much misinformation out there or miscommunication. Um, and so making those two meld is, um, it's an interesting process. So I, I, I mean, of course I want to get married and I want to have, you know, I used to want three kids, but I think I want two now, maybe one. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So, so that kind of stuff is like my personal, personal aspirations, but, um, I guess, uh, I think that it's possible to balance your workload with not working (laughs) and just having a personal life. Um, It's a a hard balance, and especially when you don't have the jobs that can make you a living that you want to live. If you live, you know, take Central Oregon, for example. It's a really hard place to live if you don't have a good job that pays well because rent market is so flooded. You know, you might be able to find a house to buy. But it's a diamond in the rough, um, and if you have a job that pays, you know, twelve to fifteen bucks an hour, you know, you're not gonna be able to make a two to twenty five hundred dollar a month mortgage.
0: And there's know? not really much industry there to yeah, provide right, those exactly. Jobs.
1: So the people that have jobs in that area are you know, entrepreneurs. that got really fortunate or lucky or had something set up already. Um, really lucky people that landed the the particular few good jobs that are there architecture or whatever whatever is there and then you have just service jobs you know
0: and so um, and you have a lot of like independent wealth yeah right a lot of, a lot of yeah. wealth coming from outside the area that right punches up the value right exactly Which, there's nothing That's, wrong with that but no it, it does makes make it harder for
1: to, people to live yeah uh so in a way pushing people out yeah. So that's difficult. And that happens in every – I mean that happens in Portland. It happens in Central Oregon. It's happening everywhere. Um, and so if you don't have jobs that um, allow you to have a, like a, a future that you want, like a, you know, a small house and raise a family, then it's really difficult to let yourself not be consumed with trying to find more work. Or becoming or not becoming a workaholic because you have to work a lot of jobs to be able to make ends meet. Right. Um, so that that's a difficult problem that I don't necessarily have an answer for.
0: <laughs> Which is ironic because to live that lifestyle, a central Oregon lifestyle of outdoor, having time to do those things. Yeah. But then you find yourself working. Yeah, for right. Sixty eight hours a week. <laughs> yeah. To you
1: find yourself thinking about it a lot, but you don't find yourself doing it because yeah. it costs too much and you can't afford it. <laughs> like getting a pass up a bachelor's, like twelve hundred dollars, or go skiing for a day is a hundred dollars you know so it's like who can afford that I mean there are plenty of people that can but in you know there's a lot there's more people that can't you know so um, so it's yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic to try to balance that Um, or you can go move to a place like Burns Oregon or something like that and yeah you can make rent work but you know it's kind of just like not much out there and people don't really want to be around people because you're out there and that's where people move to not be around people (laughs) You know, it's beautiful out there. I love it out there, but um, community is really important for me. Wait, say that, say that
0: again. Burns, Oregon is, is beautiful.
1: Well, the, the area around it. Okay. Uh, this, yeah. I'm not going to talk too much about it because that's my one of my favorite spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like like Crane, like Hot Springs, there's Hot Springs out there. There's a lot of really – I mean it's beautiful to me. A lot of people don't think yeah. sagebrush rolling hills with mountains in the distance is beautiful. A lot of people think that's bland. But I, yeah. I think I really like the high desert. So that's why I say it's beautiful. That's
0: cool. <laughs> it's ugly. It's horrible. Place. <laughs> right? A lot, a lot of mean people that will key your car. That's right. That's right. Don't Do go. Not, don't travel don't go. there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, stay away. It smells too. Yeah. A lot of uh, wildlife refuge takeovers and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, you, you yeah, you got to watch out for those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> It's a whole other podcast. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> they were very interesting, though. What's they, interesting about that whole thing mm-hmm. is that they basically the federal judges were like, "Yeah, you guys aren't in, in trouble."
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah.
0: That's the most interesting thing that the media won't want to talk about.
1: Right. And and, I, and this is a totally different podcast. But I wonder what would happen if those people that took it over were just a different demographic.
0: That's a different podcast. That's a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs>
1: a long, different podcast. Yeah. 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 Uh. Well, yeah. this
0: has been a great conversation. Yeah, man. Thank you. I've enjoyed you. this. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm
1: excited for, you know, to hear more of these. Yeah. Uh, this you know? is
0: the inaugural inaugural podcast. Deal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What's it going to be called? Or what is it called?
0: So the idea is to call this the New American Podcast. I don't know if someone took that title yet. So someone might take have taken it. it. If not, I'll take it. And the idea is we're a new America. Right. Than we were 40 years ago. Than we were 20 years ago. Than we were 200 years ago. So the people who make america what it is today is um different than it was and that doesn't mean that we can't carry on those traditions those beliefs those values and that doesn't mean that those beliefs and values haven't progressed into something better or worse mm-hmm. but just looking at like where america is today um and talking with people about it and yeah america's made up of people so having right. conversations A lot of different with people yeah <laughs> <laughs> so having conversations with those people, right, and then uh, creating kind of a mosaic, if you will, of, of what America looks like today, and I'm of belief also that America is not just the United States of America; it's the Americas. So like, yeah. Canada, like North America, South America, right? Let's get some Argentinians or some yeah. Bolivians or yeah. I think that could be cool. So absolutely, um, yeah, just the, a new, brand new perspective on an old story. So. Yeah, thank you so much. Where can we find you?
1: Uh, you can find me on uh, on uh, online at hillshadowpictures.com. It's my production company, or um, on Instagram at SamuelPike DP, also on Facebook at SamuelPike DP, and I also have a YouTube channel and a Vimeo channel
0: channel at SamuelPike. Okay. Yeah. And I want this guy to vlog. I want this guy to get out there. <laughs> yeah, he does. So if you like <laughs> if you like this conversation, sure, if you like what uh, he's about, um, find him look him up You know, give him some love um, and if you want to see more from him and his voice encourage him to to share that um, in some way so yeah. stoke, stoked to know you man thanks man really appreciate the conversation yeah, and
1: listen to this podcast because it's going to rock straight up awesome yeah. thank you yeah dude
0: thank you for joining us for this episode of American Podcast make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media This is Shane Simonson signing off until next time.